question from Monday. The smart site wasn't working. It's about what's the greens what's the propagator? Propagator is the greens function that tells you how the probability amplitude of a particle propagates from one interaction and the next. So if you imagine that somehow you have a delta function localized particle, then this will tell you how the wave function is spreading out. I'm not sure what he meant, Griffiths, meant by into which I have now incorporated the factor 2m over h bar squared. How can we just put that in Green's function? So that was just a notational trick to simplify iterating the integral Schrodinger equation so we didn't have to write those factors every time. So g was Green's function times this extra factor. I'm confused by figure 11.13. The second and third pictures don't make sense to me. Scattering off potential. of propagation appears to follow a zigzag type pattern, but in the third picture, representing third term in series, the direction of the propagation at the end is counterintuitive. I would think it would go back down to follow the pattern in the first one. Did um, it go down in the last one? Well, maybe. Like this? So, first of all, this is just a cartoon. Second of all, we have to integrate over, each of these points has an integration over it. So we integrate over, in the first case, over all possible places. Assuming the potential is only non-zero inside this circle, then we have to integrate over every position for this interaction. In this case, we have to integrate over every position of this one and this one. So the fact that it goes down here is not that meaningful because we're adding by integrating over all possible locations of those two case over all possible locations of the three. Um, someone also asked, I was looking at the terms in the series. Is it correct to say that the first term represents not interacting with the potential of the second term? I guess there was a diagram like that. The second term represents the sum over all possible ways to interact with the potential once and so on and so forth for higher terms. That's correct. Also, if this interpretation is correct, it seems to say that the in interacting with the potential is always like hitting a particle, which makes sense for our scattering problems where the potential is highly localized. But in general, we have seen potentials are spread out in all of space, so it seems that the wave function always has to interact with it, not just once or twice. So when it's, we're taking into account that it's spread out by doing this integration over all of space. So if the Coulomb potential, for example, is 1 over r, we end up integrating over the entire space. Um, another question was, how do you choose the new r, r double prime, r prime, r double prime, et cetera, for each higher order correction in g of r? So again, this is r prime, r double prime. These are dummy integration variables. So these are just labels. And we integrate over these things. So it's not that we get to choose the particle interacted there and there. We integrate over all possible interaction points. It's very interesting that a particle can essentially have unlimited interactions. I'm confused as, as to how fast these interactions occur, though. Are they occurring at relativistic speeds? So um, when we're doing non-relativistic problems where we can use a potential, we're neglecting, we're taking the speed of light to be infinite, and Coulomb potential is some in instantaneous interaction. Um, if we did quantum field theory, then we'd take into account propagation. So the potential is really the propagation of a photon. So if you have a static source, there's still an instantaneous interaction because that source has existed forever and it's set up this coolant potential. But uh, 
if the source changes, then those the effects of that change, like if we move the source, those effects propagate at the speed of light. So if you want to talk about how long the interaction takes, you could use the uncertainty principle if there's energy exchanged. Then if you know how much in how much energy was exchanged in the process, you can work out uh, the time scale that's involved. And in our elastic scattering cases, you can work over, if you know the momentum transfer, you can work out the size of the interaction region. Uh, next question, what do Feynman diagrams look like? Well, in the non-relativistic limit, they look like this. We take, if we say that this is a cool potential and we neglect, uh, take the mass of the nucleus to be infinite, then they would look like this. And so on. And if we take into account that the proton has a finite mass, then we have to include its propagation. So that's what Feynman diagrams look like. The point is that we're taking into account the propagation of the electron, the propagation of the proton, the propagation of the photon that makes up the Coulomb potential. I'm a little confused on what exactly the propagator does. So the propagator is telling you is if you definitely had the particle at a particular point, What's the probability amplitude to find it somewhere at some other point? So it tells you how it propagates from here to there. Are there tricks for evaluating or easily approximating an infinite series of integrals of wave functions and propagators? It seems like a very mathematically difficult problem, and I'm wondering if there's ever a nice, easy solution. So what you end up doing, or what you can end up doing, is a you can represent this entire series by an integral over all possible paths of the particles involved, which is equivalent to an integral over all possible field configurations. That's how you do quantum field theory. And then in certain very nice cases, you can do that integral. But in general, you do the integral by writing out these Feynman diagrams or by putting it on a supercomputer and doing a numerical integration of that integration over all possible paths. What happens if the formal series for the wave function was divergent? Or, and under what circumstances does it not converge? What secret assumptions are being made in this formal series? So uh, if the potential is singular enough that we're integrating over here, like if I make it to one over r to the fifth potential or something, then there'll be, the series won't be convergent. But what that really means is that I don't know what I'm talking about when I say it goes like one over r to the fifth at very short distances. There's probably some, at very short distances, something cuts that off. And I couldn't possibly probe that in my experiment if I really thought it goes like, if I measured it goes like one over fifth in some region probably doesn't go like that all the way down to infinitely small distances. So there's probably some cutoff that turn, the potential turns over somewhere, or it does, goes on to some smoother, like one over R behavior. So you can treat that by, again, doing the Born-Oppenheimer type trick of uh, expanding in energies. So we do a Taylor series in energy and momentum and keep the leading terms that we're, we could actually measure in an experiment that can tame those, uh, uh, the series. When you get to quantum field theory, there are divergences associated with uh, closed loop corrections. So I can, a photon can create an electron-positron pair, which could annihilate back into a photon. So that's allowed by the uncertainty principle, and those things can be divergent. Um, and again, 
by cutting those off at some very high energy scale where you haven't actually measured what's going on at those very short distances or very high energies, you can uh, <coughs> tame those series. Uh, but even after you do that, some series are just asymptotic series. So the terms get smaller and smaller and smaller to some point, and then they start getting bigger and bigger. That's just a fact of mathematics. No one guaranteed you that everything is written as a convergent series. But you, the, as long as the terms are decreasing, you're still getting a better and better approximation to the real function. About when what blows up? When the terms start going up, then, then you stop because you're getting a worse and worse approximation at that point. But that's that's just a, a problem of mathematics. But how do you know that it's actually really divergent? When you're really, really converging, oh, you're saying that it's because it cuts off. Well, once you put in cutoffs on distances and energies, they, every term will be finite. And then it can still, even when every term is finite, the terms in the series can start growing at some high order as we go out in number of couplings. Just have to suck it up. So, if that happens, and uh, if the coupling is small, then probably when you get to coupling to the tenth power in the Born series, that's a very small term. So that's an estimate of the size of the correction. So if alpha to the tenth is not a small enough uh, accuracy for you, then you need to put it on a supercomputer and do the path integral numerically, where you don't have to make, you don't have to use the perturbative or an expansion. Uh, at the end, Griffiths mentions vertex factors. What are those, and how are they used in Feynman diagrams? So he just means, in this Feynman diagram, this is called the vertex. It represents the interaction of, in this case, the electron with the photon. So it involves the charge of the particle, and actual form will depend on the spins of the particles involved. So in our case, the vertex factor is just the potential in the non-relativistic approximation. Uh, Griffiths begins by referencing the impulse approximation classical scattering theory, which is unknown to me, so the argument he gives to start off the derivation is confusing to me. So the impulse approximation was that uh, all the momentum is transferred over a very short time. So you use uh, delta P is F delta T and take delta T to be very small. How is the optical theorem related to the scattering amplitude? This is way too advanced. Uh, if you take the imaginary part of the scattering amplitude, it's related to the total cross-section. But to see that, you need to do complex analysis. And we're trying to avoid that. That's why we're, we're not talking about it. Is the Born series just describing multiple interactions to a system? Yes. It's <coughs> if the potential is weak, then you can make this series where it interacts once, it interacts twice, three times. And if the potential is actually weak, then just interacting once is a good approximation. Apparently certain experiments have supported the idea that there are no hidden variables. How did that work? What are your thoughts on this? So I thought this was actually covered in the first quarter, or at least it used to be. And that's why we don't cover it in this quarter. Uh, so, but if you're interested, the final chapter talks about the Bell inequalities. So if there were some hidden variables that uh, we don't know about, that secretly explain why everything appears to be probabilistic, then you can make definite predictions about what would happen with these entangled states that we talked about. And when you do experiments on entangled states, what you see is that those hidden variable theories predict the wrong answer. They don't agree with the experiment. Therefore, we don't care about hidden variable theories anymore. Uh, well, people still care about it because they think it would be less confusing than quantum mechanics. But if it doesn't actually agree with reality, then, uh, so people come up with, people will still try to come up with some 
non-quantum mechanical theory of physics that gives quantum mechanics as some approximation. But no one's actually been able to do that in a way that agrees with experiment. Maybe someday they will, but not in time for the final exam. <laughs> I remember reading that Griffiths said that obtaining the fine structure constant from first principles was a big open problem. What did he mean by first principles? What he means is you write down a Hamiltonian or Lagrangian that has some finite number of parameters, like 10 or 20, uh, that ex explains all of physics, and then you calculate what alpha is from that theory. Or in string theory, there would just be one parameter, maybe. Um, it, it's a pretty tall order. What people are more optimistic people hope that uh, when the LHC turns on, we'll find enough information to tell us that all the forces are unified in one force. And from that, you could calculate alpha, how alpha relates to the strong coupling constant and the weak coupling constant. There would be a relation between the three if all the forces are unified. It still wouldn't tell you what the overall scale of alpha is, just how it relates to the other ones. Um. I have a question. Yep. Well, how alpha would relate to the strong and the weak and the gravitational coupling constant? Um, the grand unified theory wouldn't relate it to gravity. String theory has to do that, but we know that string theory hasn't made any predictions, so we're not holding our breath on that one. Um, I know that you teach a graduate course on supersymmetry. It would be cool if you could say a few things about the topic since now that we know a little bit of the quantum mechanics it would get us all fired up and eager for the physics coming in our ac near academic futures. Okay. So, the same loop process uh, also happens for the Higgs boson, the thing that we're trying to find at the LHC. So, uh, and Higgs is supposed to explain the masses of the fermions, like the electrons and the quarks. So the quark with the biggest mass is the top quark. It weighs 170 times the proton mass. So it's a big whopping quark. And if you calculate this diagram, Higgs goes to top, anti-top, you get something that diverges. And in the <coughs> QED, photons and electrons and quarks, you get things that diverge like the energy cutoff, the log of the energy cutoff. But this one, and you can you can convince Feynman convinced us that if you just have these logarithms, that logarithmic sensitivity to the cutoff means essentially you're not that sensitive. So unless you get up to this energy scale, which could be orders of magnitude beyond what we can probe, you'll never <coughs> you'll never be able to make an experimental test that uh, tells you anything about these scales. But in this case of the Higgs, it goes like the cutoff energy squared. And so to be consistent with what the Higgs mass has to be in the standard model, this cutoff has to be a TeV. TeV is the scale that we're probing at the LHC. So something's up. So with the LHC, we'll be able to probe the short distance physics that's going on in this loop. We're at that energy, we'll be at that energy scale and we'll know what the answer is. Um, one possible answer is that there's a cancellation. There's another diagram with a scalar. So this permeate the top quark is a spin half particle. You can invent a theory where there's uh, what's called the top quark. It's got spin zero. And uh, if you invoke this thing called supersymmetry, which requires for every fermion, there's a spin zero particle. For every gauge boson, there's a spin half particle. It also relates these coupling strengths, and it makes uh, a contribution from this guy cancels this quadratic divergence. And so you're not sensitive to this cutoff because of this cancellation. But then you have to see these particles at the LHC. Yes? I'm just wondering, sometimes people talk about supersymmetry and string theory as if they're almost the same thing. They're not? They're not. Okay. So super, like, supersymmetry has testable results. Yes. Okay. And then in this case, it tells you, you know, gives you the because, 
because you can apply supersymmetry to ordinary forces where we have experimental access. So string theory is about applying it to gravity as well. If there's gravity, uh, you can't probe it at the quantum level with the current technology. Yeah? How are we going to see the, the squarks? Um, so these guys couple to gluons. Mm -hmm. So basically the LHC is colliding protons, which have lots of gluons in them. Gluons will make these things if they have enough energy. So the point, part of the point is the LHC has enough energy. If these guys are really explaining why this quadratic sensitivity goes away, they have to be within the energy range that the LHC could produce them. Yeah? What's the difference between quark gluons and proton gluons? I mean, you can tell the difference? Uh, these aren't, these are spin zero, mm. and they decay in a particular way, so looking at their decays, you can trace back what their properties were. So the gluon has a super partner called the gluino, but it's a... <laughs> Fermion. So actually, you would produce the gluino first, and then it would decay to the top squirt, for example. Okay. Any other questions? <laughs> yeah. So, so if we don't, so if we see nothing, does that mean there is no Higgs? Um, if we see nothing, that means that uh, all particle theorists should have their PhDs revoked, because, well, we have. Unless there's a, an incredible conspiracy of fine-tuning parameters to 20 decimal places, something has to come in to fix this problem. And it may not be supersymmetry, may not, there has to be something. So, unless we, we just don't have a clue what we're talking about. So, that's possible, yeah. Sorry, I was just, you said that supersymmetry says that what? <laughs> like every, Every fermion has a spin zero partner, and every gauge boson that we know has a spin half partner with the same quantum numbers aside from spin. Okay, and they're just there, or are they somewhere else? Well, they're heavy, so we haven't had enough energy to produce them. Well, I mean, like, given that you have one, like, when you're saying that it has a pair, you mean, like, there's a corresponding particle? There's a corresponding there. particle that could be produced if you had enough energy. Okay. If supersymmetry is exact, they would have the same masses. But uh, since we don't see them, supersymmetry must be broken. Therefore, they could have bigger masses, so we haven't seen them yet. That's the hope of supersymmetry. But we'll find out. Maybe, it, maybe it's there. Maybe it's not. So, is supersymmetry not a tested or like a proven? Like uh, quantum mechanics is so quantum mechanics is proven. Right. Supersymmetry is a conjecture okay. that will be tested at the LHC. Okay, so we were doing Yukawa potentials. So we're going to apply them to some different problems. So the first problem is nuclear scattering, because that's where they were invented. So Yukawa had this idea that you could uh, explain a lot of nuclear physics by saying that there's a force between neutrons and protons that has this Eucaliform, exponentially suppressed at large distances and 1 over r at short distances. And we know that dimensionally, potential has to be an energy. So beta should be something like a dimensionless number times h bar c. That would give us the right dimensions, just like in the Coulomb potential. And <coughs> mu this argument of the exponential should be dimensionless because it, if we expand it in Taylor series, we get all possible powers. So mu has to have units, uh, the units of mu are one over length. And uh, the units, we know that the units of h bar c are energy times length. So another way to say it is that mu should be like an energy over h bar c. That will give you something with units of inverse length. So from some, from some knowledge of relativistic quantum mechanics or quantum field theory, 
you can show that if you're exchanging a particle with a mass, you get this Yukawa, from looking at its propagator essentially, you get this Yukawa form for the potential. And in that case, the mu value of mu is given by the mass of the particle you exchange times c squared. That gives you an energy over h bar c that makes it an inverse length. And for nuclear physics, by comparing to the data, he knew what this mass scale was, and he said there has to be a particle that has that mass, and he called it, I think he called it the meson, but eventually it became known as the pion. So the pion mass is about 135 MeV, and h bar c, well, the mass is 135 MeV over c squared, and h bar c is 6.58 times 10 to the minus 16 EV seconds, times 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. So you get 1.4 times 10 to the minus 15 meters, which is uh, also known as 1.4 femtometers, or Fermi. So uh, this is roughly the size of a proton. So the range of the interaction is only over the nuclear size. And last time we saw that in the low energy, long wavelength, limit, the total cross-section for a cow potential is 16 pi m squared beta squared over h bar squared mu to the fourth, where this m is the mass of the particle that we're scattering. So in this case, that's the mass of a nucleon. So if we take beta just to be this numerical factor to be order one, then we'll get <coughs> h bar squared. Okay. Mu is m pi c over h bar fourth. So putting in numbers, the nucleon mass is about 980 MeV. The pion mass is 135 MeV. So we get 5.7 times 10 to the minus 27 meters squared for 57 barns, if you remember our barns unit. So this does, Barnes were introduced to be the typical size of a nuclear cross-section. So this whole story of, this tells you about the binding of neutrons and protons and their binding energies. And it also agrees with the cross-sections that you get for nuclear scattering. So it, so it was cool enough that uh, you got the potential named after. But it appears in all kinds of uh, areas. So next we'll do uh, neutrino elastic scattering. Everyone know about neutrinos? So there's neutrinos going through you all the time. You just don't feel them. So neutrinos feel the weak force, so there's a weak potential. And it can be repulsive or attractive, and it has the same Yukawa form. But in this case, <coughs> the thing that we're exchanging is a weak gauge boson. Maybe we should call it mu weak. So a weak gauge boson like the Z has a mass of 90 times the proton mass. So the length scale you get out is 2 times 10 to the minus 18 meters inverse. So that's 
the length scale that we've already probed with the existing colliders, and the LHC is trying to probe smaller than that scale, at least uh, 10 or 100 times smaller. Is your power, is your exponent negative or positive? Because that's a really big number. Isn't it 1 over 2.5? Mu, mu is a really big number because the length scale is a really small number. That means that yeah, yeah, okay. the potential has a very short range. So the only problem is that uh, neutrinos are usually relativistic, and we've done everything for non-relativistic particles. So typical neutrino energies, like the neutrinos going through you uh, from the sun or from nuclear reactors or from the radioactive decays in the center of the Earth, uh, nuclear energy scales are MeV, and that's much bigger than the mass of a neutrino times the speed of light squared, because uh, neutrino masses are at least the upper bound is one electron volt. So <coughs> so their momentum, h-bar k, times the speed of light, are typically in MeV. So that means that the The wave number, which is MeV over H bar C, is much less than mu weak, which is 90 GeV over H bar C. So we're in the low energy limit, um, but for our formulas to work, we have to replace the mass by the energy, since we're in the relativistic regime. But otherwise, the whole story goes through. So what you find is that low energy or long wavelengths, the total cross-section is the same formula, but we replace the mass of the scattering the neutrino by its energy over the speed of light squared. So, in the case of weak interactions, this factor of beta the weak interactions actually got unified with uh, electromagnetic interactions back in the 70s and experimentally verified in the 80s. So, roughly, this beta is close to some fudge factor times alpha. We'll call that fudge factor G. And mu, we saw, was the mass of the weak gauge boson. So we get a cross-section that grows with energy squared. So if we are interested in 1 MeV energies, the cross-section is something like g squared times 10 to the minus 48 meters squared, which is a small cross-section. So if you actually experimentally, the cross-section is about 10 to the minus 47 meters squared. So this g is like point three or something. So if you remember when we discussed uh, orders of magnitudes of cross-sections, this is the type of cross-section that you expect for dark matter. So for a while, neutrinos were a popular theory of dark matter. Um, but now we know from cosmology in particular that neutrino masses are too small to be the dark matter. So it's something else that has a tiny cross-section like that or even smaller.
So just to see how small that cross-section is, we can calculate the mean-free path. And we'll do it for lead. So the mean-free path is 1 over the number of uh, scattering targets times the cross-section. So if you put in the units, the number density of targets is a number over a volume and the cross-section is an area, so that gives you something with units of length. So in lead, uh, 11,400 kilograms of lead fills one, a cubic meter. And <coughs> each proton, or each nucleus, each lead nucleus is about uh, 10 to the minus 27 kilograms. So that gives us the number of nuclei. And then the cross-section we said was 10 to the minus 47 meters squared. So you get something like 10 to the 16 meters, which is 1.6 light years. So if you had 1.6 light years of lead, a thickness of 1.6 light years, and sent a neutrino beam through it, then you could imagine that uh, half the time it would scatter. So you need a lot of shielding to block out neutrinos. That's why they're going through you right now. And that's why you don't feel anything, because they go through you and don't interact. If we did the same calculation for water, uh, it's almost the same thing. A cubic meter of water is a thousand kilograms. Proton mass is the same. Cross-section is about the same. You get a uh, 1.7 times 10 to the 17 meters. It's about 18 light years. Nevertheless, you can detect neutrinos if you have enough water and enough neutrinos. So, inside the sun, protons scatter off protons. They can produce deuterium, a positron, and an electron neutrino. Also, a proton and a proton and an electron can scatter and form deuterium and a neutrino. So the way what's happening here is one of these protons is converted to a neutron. The neutron can bind with the proton. It's got a stable bound state, which is deuterium, or at least a deuterium nucleus. But so this is part of the cycle where we turn hydrogen into heavier elements. This is the first step. Uh, and it's the limiting step. But what happens to this neutrino? This stuff, the deuterium and the positron, they're going to interact and sit in the center of the sun. But the neutrino is going to fly out of the sun. The sun isn't light years thick, so it'll probably get out. So at the surface of the Earth, There's the luminosity of neutrinos. There's 6 times 10 to the 10 neutrinos per centimeter squared per second. So there's a lot of neutrinos going through you from the sun. And they have an average energy of uh, 0.26 MeV. So if we want to calculate the rate of that. We take the luminosity times the cross-section times the number of targets to our nuclei. And let's say that we had three tons of water lying around. So our luminosity, 6 times 10 to the 10, 
centimeters squared per second. We'll convert centimeters to meters. We'll this was for this was the cross section for an MeV energy, so we need to scale down by the energy over one MeV. Three tons of water is about 2,700 kilograms. Divided by a proton mass gives us the number of targets. So that's 7 times 10 to the minus 4 per second, which is equivalent to 20,000 per year, since a year has pi times 10 to the 7 seconds. So, if you had three tons of water, you'd see a lot of neutrinos. So, people have done this. So, first of all, uh, took a while. Yukawa's idea was in the 30s. It took until the 50s before people actually figured out there was a pion. The way they did this was basically taking layers of film in stacks, putting them on top of a mountain in a closed box, let them sit there for a month, develop them, and then go through miles and miles of film until you find a nice picture of a cosmic ray event. And here are some of the first ones they found. But pion comes in, its nucleus, kicks out something, or it's a muon, which then decays to an electron. And you just have to be lucky enough that it all happens in your film. But there's lots of cosmic rays, so. Have they figured out better ways to do assessment? Well, basically you have electronic detectors now. So, basically digital film, if you wish. So, people are still... Also, they have Cherenkov detectors, and there's a gigantic detector in South America called Auger. But now, they're not so interested in what the pions are. They're interested in the primary cosmic rays that produce the pions by colliding with nuclei in the upper atmosphere trying to track those back to their sources and see, trying to figure out where the cosmic rays come from. So here's a, an example neutrino, neutrino detector. So this is a big tank. Each one of these little dots is a photomultiplier tube. This little blob here is four graduate students in a rubber raft. And their job was, as they filled up the tank, they went around and scrubbed off the plastic shield on the photomultiplier tube, and then the next day it's gone up another foot, so they go around again. Did they feed them? Hmm? <laughs> they, they fed them once a day, yeah. It's <laughs> all graduate students need. What? They got coffee. I can't hear you. They got coffee, they didn't get food. Really? Okay, well. So if you want to be an experimentalist, this is the kind of fun you can have. Okay. So this is our last official problem. And after that, next, next time we'll do review. And we'll try to get a room for another review session Friday afternoon. So our last official problem is going to be doping, not that kind of doping, in gallium arsenide. So imagine that uh, there's a valence band. This is going to bring in all kinds of things that we've learned over the quarter. So in this gallium arsenide, there's some valence band that's full, and then there's an empty conduction band. And then <clears throat> at some particular position in the gallium arsenide, I put in a silicon atom instead of a gallium. Silicon has one extra electron compared to a gallium, so it doesn't quite fit into the lattice structure, or at least that extra electron doesn't. So the first question is, what happens to the extra electron in the silicon? And I've already 
uh, told you part of the answer. At this particular location where the silicon is, there's a possibility to have a bound state where the electron is bound to that silicon. But it's not quite as simple as hydrogen. So in that conduction band, uh, the electron has some it has an energy, it has a Hamiltonian, it depends on momentum. And if we looked at that energy as a function of momentum and took its second derivative, or function of wave number, divided by h bar squared, if it was just a free particle that would give us one over the mass. Uh, but experimentally you can calculate what this is and what you find is that there's an effective mass that's about 0.07 times the electron mass. So this is some complicated result of being in a lattice of all these gallium arsenide atoms. And it would uh, be very hard to calculate. But we'll just take the experimental value. So for electrons that make it up near this conduction band, they have an effective mass that's much smaller than the electron mass. And now we can try to look at the bound states of those electrons near this silicon. So if you imagine taking the extra electron out of the silicon and then dumping it in this material, there's a positive charge where the silicon is. And so there's some kind of coulomb potential that we could see if there's a bound state. So that, <coughs> that bound state will have an effective Bohr radius. Um, normally it would be h-bar over alpha mc, but now because this effective mass is smaller, the Bohr, effective Bohr radius is going to be bigger. And in addition, we're not in empty space, we're inside a dielectric. So there's a relative dielectric constant. Remember alpha went like 1 over epsilon naught. So the dielectric constant of this material is to be epsilon naught times epsilon relative. And so by putting this factor of epsilon relative in here, we account for the fact that we're not in free space. And uh, the measured value in gallium arsenide is about 13.2. So this effective Bohr radius turns out to be 10 nanometers instead of half an angstrom. So if we look at the energy levels of this uh, positive charge, we would do our usual hydrogen calculation. But uh, we want to replace the electron mass by the effective m star. And since it goes like alpha squared, we need 1 over epsilon relative squared. So the hydrogen binding energy is minus 13.6 electron volts. The effective mass is 0.07 times the electron mass. And epsilon relative is 13.2, and we have to square that. So we get a binding energy that's 5.5 milli-electron volts instead of being electron volts because the mass is smaller and a dielectric constant. And at room temperature, we're assuming we're building a computer that functions at room temperature. KBT is Boltzmann's constant times 300 degrees Kelvin is about 25 milli-electron volts. So at room temperature, the, just the thermal energy is enough to dissociate this electron out of this bound state. So thermal interactions will kick it out of, so I've drawn in the energy level here. This represents that ground state that we found here that's minus 5.5 milli-electron volts below the conduction band. So that's uh, delta E. 
but the thermal interactions will typically kick it out of that bound state. So that electron, by putting that silicon in, we'd get one electron up in the conduction band at room temperature. And we're left behind with an ionized silicon atom, which will have a positive charge. Now we do that n times. So we'll replace n of the gallium atoms with silicon. Then we'll get some number density, which is the doping density. It's the number of gallium atoms we replace divided by the volume. So the next step is to solve uh, where does this electron go? And the first thing we have to do is figure out, uh, well, there's a bunch of silicon atoms that are charged and a bunch of electrons up at the conduction band. But those electrons are still going to be attracted to the silicon atoms because they still have a positive charge that's not balanced. So we need to find how the electrons move on this background of positive charges. And the answer is, the answer we want to get to is there's the Yukawa potential. But uh, we're not going to get there today. Any questions? Um, so far it only came in in calculating this binding energy. I mean, like, why did we use it? Um, well, <coughs> if we're, we're comparing to electrons that are in the conduction band, and this, this is some small energy below the conduction band, so we're approximating that the effective mass in the bound state is close to the effective mass in the conduction band. But be it's because we're inside a semiconductor and there's all kinds of complicated effects going on of the interactions of the electron with all the atoms around it. And to first order, we're approximating all those effects by just saying that effectively the mass is smaller because of all these other things lying around. It would be, I mean, it would be very hard to calculate the energy of this electron in a the full putting in the full lattice of all the atoms and trying to solve the wave functions. And I mean, people try to do this semi-numerically with lots of approximations, but we're just taking the experimental measurement of what the effective mass is. Okay. Okay. So on Friday we'll finish this up. We'll do some review and we'll have hopefully an extra review in the afternoon.